thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. So as Jodine said, uh, today's Bible reading is from Revelation chapter 18. I'm starting with verse 9 of chapter 18 in Revelation. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her, her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the city will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendour have vanished, never to be recovered. I would have thought that would have been really obvious where we're going with that. <laughs> Apparently not. No. It's good to have you here this morning. Uh, let me just reiterate uh, what Jodine said about pathways, uh, really important that you be there. I can't uh, emphasize enough how significant this will be for us moving forward. Uh, and whether you uh, see yourself as being uh, kind of relatively new to our community of faith, and you think, oh, I'd love to go through an integration uh, course, uh, or whether you've been here forever, really want you to be here. Uh, Thursday morning, we have uh, a, a spot for those of you who don't like to get out at night uh, or uh, can't get out because of babysitting or all those sorts of things. So please take advantage of one of those opportunities as well. There's plenty of space because we're holding it in here, uh, so I dare you all to show up, uh, and uh, we'll see how we go with that. But really significant stuff that we're starting this week. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to presenting it and sharing it and, uh, and being able to, to discuss that together. However, uh, this morning we are continuing this series on financial stewardship entitled Free, uh, where we're exploring what it means for us to uh, be disciples of Jesus. I mentioned this last week, uh, as a community of faith, we want to be strategic about discipleship. We want to nurture followers of Jesus to be participants with God in his mission wherever he invites them into that. And in order to do that, we want to make sure that we're, we're uh, practicing certain things. Uh, we want to be engaged in spiritual disciplines that enable and strengthen our discipleship. We want to be engaged with uh, faith in our world and trying to nut out what it means to be faithful followers of Jesus, not just inside of church, but actually in our day-to-day -day lives. And on top of that, we also want to find space and ways to just talk about what it is that we believe. We want to talk about discipleship. And so for us to talk about discipleship, particularly in the area of finance, is actually really quite significant for us because we tend not to talk about finance as much, and we tend not to talk about finances in relationship to discipleship. And so we want to have this conversation. Last week, we started the conversation by thinking about uh, stewardship and the fundamental principle of stewardship that all that we have is not ours, but is God's. Uh, and that stewardship is based then on two really important things. One is our relationship with God uh, in order that we might then steward what He has given us for the things that He is interested in doing. 
Uh, He is given to us in order that we might accomplish His purposes. So relationship with God is critical in order to know the things that are valuable to Him, the things that He is focused on, that we might more effectively steward the things that we've been given. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that uh, uh, this week, if you weren't here last week, it is on our podcast. I'd encourage you to have a listen to it so that we can continue the conversation forward. But today I want to talk a little bit and open the conversation up around financial security. And it's going to take me a little while to get to security in the end, so stay with me. Because I want to begin by talking about brand loyalty. You're familiar with brand loyalty? All of you are, no doubt, uh, in somebody's, for someone's business and some marketing agency, you are the dream, right? Uh, you have become brand loyal. Uh, There's a particular brand, maybe it's the type of phone that you buy, the type of computer you get, or a particular service agency, or whatever it might be, that you always frequent, and you are loyal to them, right? Uh, You will choose them first and foremost. If prices go up a little bit, that's okay, because you are loyal to the product or the cause. Anyone else loyal to a product or a cause? A few of you are nodding at least, thank you. Now, companies and advertising agencies do a whole bunch of stuff to try to help um, strengthen our loyalty, right? So one of them is like loyalty cards or, you know, that kind of deal. So some of you, like myself, have a flybys card, right? Uh, tried to design to make us, if we're, if we're caught at the crossroads between Coles and Woolies, it'll draw us into Coles because nothing like getting a few hundred thousand flyby points that don't do my, I won't go there, right? (laughs) To drag my loyalty, right? It's it's how it's designed to do. But ultimately, what what advertisers and companies are trying to develop within us in terms of brand loyalty is an emotional connection, a psychological connection that actually drives loyalty. It's not just about giving us some little card or or whatever it might be. Uh, It's not only about um, making sure that we continue to, to, to repurchase the whatever, the product. It's ultimately to connect us emotionally. And we know the truthfulness of that, not just in brand loyalty, but also in terms of our loyalty expressed in relationship, don't we? Right? So our loyalty to people, loyalty to those that we work with or to our family or to our friends is driven by, by an emotional connection, isn't it? It's because I love you. It's because I care for you. It's because I want the best for you that I will back you up. I will do what you ask me to do. I will be there for you. I will defend the the decisions that you make. I'll back you up. And it's driven out of this sense of emotion, this relationship, right? And here's where our problem becomes when we start talking about about security and finances and loyalty and all of those sorts of things. The problem is that when Jesus talks about finances and loyalty to himself, he says these words, you cannot serve two masters, right? You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I think we often try to find a loophole in that, don't we? You know, Jesus was using hyperbole. He was like purposefully exaggerating, right, to make a point, and I I get the point, Uh, but we kind of end up treating it a little bit like the decision between Coles and Woolies, right? I have a flybys card and I don't have the equivalent at Woolies, but I really don't feel any lack of loyalty when I go into a Woolies, right? I don't stand at the door of a Woolies going, I'm I'm, I'm betraying my trust. Like, I I just don't go there. I don't know about you. I hope you don't do that either, right? I just go into into Woolies. Oh, look at that. I'm going to buy my bread and milk here today rather than at Kohl's. But in reality, we know 
that when we're talking about that emotional connection, that relational connection that drives loyalty, that it does get a lot more complicated, doesn't it? Have you ever been caught between two loyalties with people at work? Two people that you are loyal to, that you love and respect and want the best for, who have a falling out and you're caught between them? Have you ever been the one to mediate a conflict in the family between your two siblings? Well, you're loyal to both, you love them both, you want the best for them both, but you're caught between loyalties. Have you ever known a couple who have gotten divorced? A couple whom you loved, and you loved him and you loved her, and they got divorced, and now your loyalties are also divided? That's what Jesus is talking about when he says you cannot serve both God and money. Our emotional connection to one or the other drives a loyalty, and those, there's, in, there's an incompatibility there. And so we have to kind of unpack and consider where our loyalty lies and how do we identify loyalty, and where does a loyalty become a loyalty that's driven by emotion, and when doesn't it? This is the discussion that we have to have, and it's not an easy one. And, and part of the reason why it's so complicated for us in relationship to money is actually related to the issue of trust. I was listening to a podcast, it's a business podcast called Masters of Scale, hosted by Reid Hoffman, who started LinkedIn, I think. Uh, I just started listening to it, it's all about scaling businesses really quickly and stuff, it's kind of interesting. And he talks about trust in one of the, um, uh, one of the podcasts, and he defines trust, I don't know if this is his definition, but he uses it, as consistency over time, right? So if you act consistently over a long period of time, you end up building trust, with people or customers or organizations or whatever it might be. That makes sense, right? Think about that then from the concept of finances and money. Because money is something that we handle all the time, isn't it? Right? It doesn't matter what I say today. It doesn't matter what passage of Scripture we look at. There are still bills to pay tomorrow, right? There's still school fees to be paid. There's still preschool fees to be paid. There's still a retirement to plan for. There's still the car to get fixed. There's like, we deal with money all the time, don't we? And money has some limited value in our lives, doesn't it? Actually, fairly significant value, doesn't it? Right? Because being able to pay the bills and being able to send our kids to school and being able to get the car fixed and all of those sorts of things decreases stress in our life, doesn't it? Uh, having money gives us more options and more control, or at least a sense of control over our life. We have more options before us and therefore a greater sense of control about what happens in our life. And that's kind of comforting. It's nice to think that if we had enough finances, if we had enough security in that sense, that we would then be able to make sure that we could care for ourselves and not be left to the mercy of those around us or to become a burden on those around us and, and on and on it goes. Money has benefit in our lives right? And so money builds a trust in us because over time it consistently comes through for us, doesn't it? The bill comes in, we're stressed out, and then the paycheck comes in, bang, saved. Interest rates go up and then I get a pay raise at work, bang, saved. And again and again and again, consistency over time, and we end up placing some of our trust in money. Now, I don't know how you avoid that, to tell you the truth. I really don't know how you avoid that. But here's the dilemma for us. Because the root of, of placing trust in finances bears the fruit of idolatry and blasphemy. And if that sounds like an overstatement, it is not. 
The, the roots of trusting in money, of finding ourselves trusting in money, uh, is, is that we will end up with the fruit of idolatry and blasphemy based on a loyalty, an emotional connection to money. Here's how it works. Idolatry is placing something in the place of God, right? That makes enough sense. We tend to worship what we fear controls our destiny. We, f- we worship what we fear controls our destiny, right? So the ancient Israelites, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this, but the ancient Israelites were forever, forever it seems, abandoning the Lord and putting their trust in uh, Baal and Asherah, the names of fertility deities, Now, the reason why they were so tempted to place their trust in fertility deities was because it was an agricultural society. We've been reminded with the drought, haven't we, about the importance of the rain arriving at the right time and in in, in kind of the right quantity. And if it doesn't, farmers, their lifestyles are destroyed, right? An entire culture based on that makes sure and are tempted to believe that their entire destiny is wrapped up in the arrival of the rains. And therefore, these fertility gods and goddesses who promise to do that seem like just the treat. You you with me on that one? If the trust that we have in money is allowed to mature into a loyalty, it produces the fruit of idolatry where we begin to see finances as actually controlling our destiny. That finances is actually what provides us with security. That finances is actually what we need to spend the most amount of time and energy on because it is critical to our getting where we need to get and becoming who we want to become. That's where it becomes problematic. Blasphemy is is claiming to provide or do what only God can provide or do. right. When Jesus is in the house in Capernaum, he's teaching, and they tear off the roof. You might remember this story in the, in the Gospels, and they lower a, a paralyzed man in front of him, and Jesus looks at the man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders in the crowd say to themselves, that's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins except God? Right? And they are right, except that Jesus, well, except for who Jesus is, right? That's the wonderful tension in the story. But they've got it Right? For some random bloke to claim that he can forgive sins to do what only God can do is a step too far. Money makes these kinds of of outrageous claims, doesn't it? That we can find freedom financially, that we can find security financially, that we'll be okay if we have enough money. Those are blasphemous claims. We sang earlier, Christ is enough for me. And our society says, yeah, that's, that's a lovely thought. That's a nice sentiment. But really what you need is enough money to retire on, right? What you really need is, an, is a diversified investment portfolio. That's what you really need. That'll be enough for you. And so we have these blasphemous claims. Now, here's, here's why it's so complicated. It's, it's, it, well, it's just complicated. That's why it's so complicated. <laughs> well, like seriously, how do you know when your day-to-day handling of finances, your day-to-day work with money, and, and the kind of the consistency over time that money has, how do you know when that moves from trust to loyalty? How do you know when money has, be, has moved from being something you deal with every day to something that's become an idol for you? How do you pick that? 
I mean, because let me put it this way. I doubt that any of you have a little shrine in your house with piles of, you know, kind of coins and bills and old kind of bank stubs and empty checkbooks and candles and incense. You bow down to it every morning and say, oh, great and mighty dollar, please provide for me. Like, well, I, I mean, I, doubt, I don't think anyone has that, right? You never know, but I don't think so. And if you have, that would be idolatry, right? But we don't go there. Instead, we're left with this kind of ambiguous mess in the middle where we deal with money every single day. We know the value of money. We know the wisdom of money. We know the significance of it in our lives. We know that we can trust it for certain things. When does that trust become loyalty? When does that trust lead to idolatry? How do we pick that? And this is, this is incredibly important and why we need to have the conversation. Let me take you back to this passage in Revelation, which may seem like a strange place to go, but John is writing to a group of believers who are being tempted to compromise. They're being tempted to compromise their faith. Uh, They're being tempted to no longer be as loyal to Jesus. And the payoff is actually a quite literal payoff. If we had more time, I would take you through the, the language of the book of Revelation. But there is a an incredible amount of language about wealth. The church at Laodicea, one of the seven churches that John addresses in the opening couple of chapters, is accused essentially of having become self-dependent. They depend upon themselves. They think they are wealthy, but Jesus says you're poor. And that reflects the literal situation there. A little bit later on, when the lamb is appraised uh, in chapter 4, it says that the lamb, chapter 5, the lamb is worthy to receive all power, honor, glory, majesty, all the stuff you would expect in the Bible, and the lamb is worthy to receive wealth. I don't know why, we never include that part in our songs. It's funny, right? Glory and honor and praise to the lamb, we never include wealth, which is strange because John did. When the the mark of the beast is given, remember the great mark of the beast? Well, maybe you probably don't remember it because it hasn't happened yet. But on the forehead or the hand, right? Right hand, forehead, right? You know what that enables you to do? To buy or to sell. Isn't that crazy? Here's this this grand vision, this heavenly uh, depiction of what's happening in our world. And the only outcome of having the mark of the beast is to enable you to buy or to sell, which means for Christians who did not have the mark of the beast, they could not buy or sell. In other words, they were still free to worship Jesus. They just couldn't buy or sell. Where do you think the pressure's coming? There is a bottom line here that John is addressing. So when Babylon falls... In chapter 18, when, when the Babylon, the great symbol of the city of Rome, and all of its promises to the people all throughout the empire that Rome could provide them with prosperity, blessings, success, peace, life, security, when Babylon falls, did you hear what they were complaining about? The city falls and the merchants, their first response is, who's going to buy our stuff? And then there's like the longest list of stuff in Scripture. Like it includes cinnamon, for crying out loud. Who's going to buy my cinnamon? Let alone horses and gold and silver and gems and uh, uh, citron wood. And like it just goes on and on and on. What the, what's the problem? Well, 
They'd placed all their loyalty in Rome. They had bought in fully to what Rome could provide. And when Rome falls, when the judgment comes, they could not get out in time and lost everything. And here's the point. It's difficult for us to work it out in, 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 in our world. Is as difficult as it was for John's first hearers to, to kind of figure out where our trust becomes loyalty. It's hard to figure out, but it is critical to figure out. Because in the, in the book of Revelation, what John sees from heaven is that the world is not nearly as gray as it appears. This decision about whether we are going to be loyal to Jesus or loyal to the promises of our world becomes a defining decision about our discipleship. This is an important discussion to have about finances, about economics, about marketplaces, about where our trust is and where that trust has potentially become loyalty, where it's beginning to, to blossom into idolatry and blasphemy and actually cripple and paralyze our discipleship. And it's further complicated by some of the language that that John uses. In chapter 18, verse 3, he says, All the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries, speaking of the city. Uh, and the city is depicted as a, as a prostitute on a beast covered with blasphemous names, claims to do and provide what only God can do and provide. And there's two really interesting components of it. One is the seductiveness of wealth represented by this, this, kind of this, this woman on this beast. It is seductive. John himself, in the midst of this vision, is astonished by her. He's just overwhelmed. He, just, he gets it. He realizes just how seductive wealth and the illusion of control that it provides can be, and the comfort and the power and the choice can be. He is aware of how seductive it is, and he also uses the language of intoxication. What happens when we are intoxicated? We're no longer as good with our inhibitions, and our judgment is impaired. John says, if you get too close to this stuff, you will become drunk on money. And when you are drunk on money, you're going to make bad decisions. Oh, they'll probably be fantastic financial decisions, but they're going to be lousy decisions in the sense of what's really ultimately important here, which is about our loyalty to Jesus. John calls his readers and us to discern what is really happening, to discern the reality of the claims of our world, to discern and understand and see and pull apart and recognize what those claims are, and then to place our loyalty ever more firmly in Christ. And there's a couple things I think that we really need to discern in the midst of this. This is where I want to come back to financial security and the wonderful myth that it contains for us. Because as I was thinking about security, I mean, it's a beautiful word, isn't it? Security. To feel secure. It sounds mm, solid, doesn't it? It sounds peaceful. It sounds contented. It sounds safe. But security seems to me to be always connected to fear. Think about cybersecurity. Out of fear that our Facebook account will be hacked again, uh, or our credit card details will be stolen, or all of the stuff on our computer will be encrypted, we have one really long, complicated password that we use for everything, right? Because we're secure. 
The importance of firewalls, the importance of spam filters, the importance of all that sort of stuff increases with the fear. So once we know a friend whose who's, who's, uh, account has been hacked, or once we hear from someone who's had something horrible happen to them, we get all concerned about security and we increase our security, but we only increase our security because our fear has increased. Have you noticed it in politics? We are really afraid of immigrants, aren't we? Or aren't you? <laughs> aren't I? I'm an immigrant, so I don't know how that works, right? We're all afraid of them, aren't we? Refugees and immigrants uh, represent an enormous threat to us, apparently, right? You're hearing this a lot. And what's the response? Secure borders. What, what is the response of it? And we notice it, we notice it in politics because it's fear-mongering, right? It's the politics of fear. We see it very, very clearly. But then we're presented with this security, but security is always linked to the fear that it seeks to conquer. And here's the reason why financial security will always, 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 always let you down. Because ultimately, all of our attempts to find financial security is just a response to our financial fears. And unless we deal with our fear, we will never be free. And we will never be truly secure. All of our fear of missing out, all of our fear of being out of control, all of our fear of not being able to provide, all of our fear about finances is met by financial security, but all it does is tie us ever more closely and chain us ever more securely to the very fears that we need freedom from. It is a lie. Financial security is a lie, ultimately. Oh, it'll make for a comfortable retirement, yes. It'll allow you to pay the bills, certainly. But do you see the myth that it hides? Unless we have our fear dealt with, unless we are set free from fear, no amount of money is going to save us. We need to see through that and gain the freedom that we really, really need. And here's the implication. I mentioned before about loyalty and how a relationship of loyalty that's based on love and care and trust, right, looks a certain way. Now, you, you know what this looks like when someone is loyal to you, right, because they love you and respect you and care for you. They'll do what you ask. They, they might even anticipate what you might ask and do it. If you make a bad decision, they'll, they'll back you up. Right? It's good to have loyal people around when you make a bad decision, isn't it? So nice to know someone's going to stand by you, help you pick up the pieces, Right? They're going to be there. They'll back you up. They will be with you. They'll be there when you need them. And it's based on love and relationship. But it is possible to have the same outcomes without the heart piece, isn't it? Never been part of the military, just fair disclosure. But it seems to me that the military creates the same kind of relationships, right? Where you do what I say, you anticipate my orders, all right? You back my decisions, it's the same kind of deal. You can correct me if I'm wrong, you military types who are here, right? But it seems to me that while there can be friendship and respect and love and all of those things in both scenarios, one is based on duty and one is based on the heart. Now, there's a big difference between them, isn't there? Particularly when you turn to our discipleship. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You cannot be loyal to both money and to God. What will happen is you will be loyal to money and you will be dutiful to Jesus. And duty is fatal 
to discipleship. It is fatal to discipleship. Oh, you'll still do all the right stuff. You'll still obey what Jesus calls you to do. You'll still be there for him, right? You'll still do the stuff that you should do. You'll give a little bit. You'll come to church. You'll go to a life group. You'll tick all those boxes, but you're doing it not because you're motivated by love, but because you're motivated, motivated by duty. And there's a massive difference, isn't there? Just think about giving in relationship to duty or love. If we're called to give and we see it as a duty, we will give the bare minimum at just the right time. Box ticked. If we give out of love, it's so different, isn't it? Think about how you give to your friends. If your best friend came to you today and said, I'm struggling, I can't pay some bills, I can't pay some rent, wouldn't you just say, what can I do to help? And if you had the capacity, wouldn't you just write the check or take out the money and just give it to them? And would you worry about when they paid you back? Would you draw up a contract and say, okay, so you'll pay me back on these days and you do it in these kind of installments? Like, would you? It's not how it works with friends, is it? How can I help? Yes, done. Don't worry about it. Big difference, isn't there? Where does our loyalty lie? that's the critical question for us. That's the critical question for us. Because if as believers we are motivated by duty, our discipleship is going to be crippled and paralyzed. But if it's motivated by love, it will blossom and bloom and mature. So what are the practices that we can engage in to enable this? What are the indicators? Can I just say, I think there's a couple pretty key indicators about where your loyalty lies. If you are fearful that God might ask you to give something away, you might want to check your loyalty. That's just one. If you feel that any kind of sense of obligation is a duty to give to the things that God has called you to give, then that's another. But I think there are a couple of things we can do. One, I think we can give. You know what giving does for us? Giving actually breaks the hold of fear. Because the best way to face a fear that we're not going to have enough is to actually let go and see if God shows up. That sounds like a discipleship step to me, doesn't it? I'm freaking out about my future. I'm freaking out about whether this is going to be enough for me. I'm freaking out whether I really believe that Jesus is enough for me. So I'm actually going to let go of something here. See, because here's the implication if we, if we can't let go. If we cannot let go of our fear, we will never be able to participate with what God calls us to do because we will be too dominated by fear. God invites each of us to participate with what he's doing. And he's not just going to ask for your time. He's also going to ask for your finances because they're ultimately from him. He's going to ask for them. And if we are fearful of letting go, then when he says, hey, look, here's an opportunity to invest in what I'm about, we're going to go, I can't. I'm too scared. And so we will miss out the opportunity. So I think practicing giving in small ways and large, with friends and family and charities and the church, I think that's a really helpful Christian practice. But I think one of the more significant is actually to commit to the discipline of prayer. To bring more and more and more of our life before Jesus. Because... Consistency over time builds trust. 
And the more of our lives that we bring to Jesus, the more of our lives that we lay before him, the more opportunities we have to see where he is faithful and good and kind and gracious and compassionate. And we build, over time, a deep and abiding trust that will blossom into a real, profound loyalty. So bring everything to the Lord. Bring everything to the Lord. Interestingly, when I was listening to this podcast, uh, it was about trust and building trust and building trust when you didn't have time. If uh, trust is consistency over time, what do you do if you don't have any time? And, and the author suggests, or the, the interview suggested, that if you don't have any time, then the best way to build trust is to use an extravagant gesture. If I'm seeking to build trust with you and I have no time, an extravagant gesture will kind of shortcut that system. Right? Brilliant idea, brilliant thought, really. And it's interesting when you then consider what Jesus has done for us. Because while he is consistency over time and trustworthy, he has also, as if he were short on time, made an extravagant gesture to each of us. In his life, death, and resurrection for you and for me to set us free from everything that chains us, including our fears. So let us go about building trust in Jesus. Let us go about having the conversations about where our loyalty lies and make the appropriate kinds of decisions moving forward because this is critical to our discipleship and our participation in what God has called us to. And because we don't want Sunday to be part of our duty, but we want it to be part of our heart response, we've been taking some time at the end of each service to allow you some space to respond. Jodine mentioned it before, that uh, we hope that you meet God and that you came a little bit expectant that that was the case. I prayed this morning that the Holy Spirit would be active here and that there'd be some conviction that would set us free. So if you're feeling a little bit of conviction, that's a good first step to freedom. So I'm going to invite Jodine up. The, the worship team are going to come. She's going to lead us in a, just an opportunity for us to reflect and to pause and to think, lead us in prayer. And then we're going to respond in worship and prayer uh, as the people of God. So thanks, Jods. So is anyone ready to throw their wallet or their purse away or their credit cards? Hey, Jesus, take my money. Anyone ready to change their password from Jesus123 to maybe Jesus456 now? <laughs> Well, we can't escape money, uh, and while it's a great tool, um, we know it can be a terrible master, and, and one that creeps upon us and, and takes hold of things that sometimes we didn't willingly hand over in the first place. And it's really interesting to consider, does financial security, a phrase which is thrown around a lot, actually make us free? Or does security based in finances actually enslave us? It's funny because in our world, um, there's so many cultural narratives like financial security and things that get thrown around and sometimes they become gospel more than the gospel actually is for us. So we're going to take a moment to reflect on our trust and on our loyalties. What is our expenditure? The things we devote time, energy or even worry to say about our trust? What do they say about our loyalties? In an atmosphere of grace, can I invite us all to reflect on or ask the Holy Spirit what our heart needs to focus on 
in response to this message. Holy Spirit, shine your light on our hearts. Let's take a minute now.